St. James. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm glad that all, the, the, I won't say all, that sounds like there's a million people out there. 
that those who are listening to the live stream, I'm glad that you are too, however few or many there are of you. Uh, some quick announcements. One actually has to do with the live stream. Uh, I was told this week that uh, a lot of you were unaware of how to look at the, how to find the announcements. Um, if, for those of you who aren't uh, worshiping in person, uh, let me just give you a quick, um, quick rundown on how to do that. And if you have any questions at all, please call the church office. So the announcements every week are always on um, the church website. So go to stjameslincarbon.org and uh, go to the sermons link at the top of the page. Click on sermons, scroll down to find the most recent sermon, click on that sermon. And when you click on that, a little bit farther down that page, there will be an order of service link and the bulletin will be included in there with all the announcements and you can find them there. And again, if you have any questions about anything, uh, please call the church office and we can answer those questions. Um, some of those announcements which are in your bulletin have to do with mercy ministry stuff. A couple of big things that have to do with the uh, Glen Carbon School mission, uh, Thanksgiving dinners, there's a sign up uh, online. Uh, if you go to that link in the bulletin online, there's a sign up for uh, providing food for that. We're putting together some dinners. There's also a family that we're sponsoring uh, for Christmas, a large family here in Glen Carbon. Uh, link for that online too in the announcements. Uh, also, same thing we did last year, uh, coats and mittens. There'll be a place in the narthex to drop those off for, for families uh, with kids at the Glen Carbon Elementary School who don't have coats and mittens before winter hits. Stacy wants me to remind you, bring back your Operation Christmas box, boxes packed and ready to go by next Sunday, and then or just put it, putting them back in the narthex. Okay, so have those ready to go, those of you who took uh, Christmas boxes. And I'm going to give you a couple of announcements here, too. Uh, one is a new members class tonight at 6 o'clock. Youth confirmation at uh, 11.30 today. But uh, next week, Matt Hainer and uh, Will Van from CCLS are going to be here to present the micro school concept. And they'll be meeting here in the sanctuary at 11.30 to present it and to uh, get any questions from you guys about that. If you are not able to be here, or if you come to this service and then you go home, you don't need to come back. I believe that we're going to live stream it. And if you watch it and you have any questions at all, you can text me your questions and I will ask, I'll be here in the sanctuary, I'll ask Matt and uh, Will those questions. Also, one more announcement, I know it's a lot and then we'll get to the worship service. Uh, this Wednesday evening, the Zoom Bible study is going to be led by Michael Echelkamp who is the lead pastor at St. John's Renewal in Denver. It's a large, multi-campus church. Uh, they have the church government structure that we are working towards with the plurality of elders and deacons. It's an LCMS church. Uh, they've done it for decades. They've tested it out. They're, on, they're living it. We're here on the front end, not knowing what it's going to look like in practice. But Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, he's going to lead the Bible study. And if you, for, for those of you who typically come to the Wednesday evening Zoom Bible study, you will get an invitation to that. If you don't usually come, but you'd like to participate in that, ask him any questions, hear what he has to say. Uh, text me or call me or email me, and I will send you out an invitation to that Zoom Bible study uh, when, this Wednesday evening, the 11th at 7 o'clock. Okay, that's all, that's all that I think that we have announcements, except for this. When, when Matt and Will from CCLS are here next Sunday, we will not have youth confirmation class, or adult Bible study because we'll be doing the meeting with the school people. All right, uh, stand with me and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, whom we behold in awe and wonder, 
who has kept covenant and steadfast love with your people from age to age. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have known in our hearts what is right, and yet we did wrong anyway. We have been fascinated by evil, delighted with pleasing ourselves, satisfying our desires, serving ourselves with pleasures. O Lord, great God, have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. We know you are a God who delights in goodness. Grant that we too might delight in goodness. We know you are a God who rejoices in peace and justice. Grant that we might be at peace with ourselves and each other. O Lord, great God, grant that our hearts might be filled with the love of justice, with peace beyond understanding, with patience, with joy. These prayers we present to you, O Father, in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and yet lives forevermore. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Psalm from Psalm 84. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The readings for the next several Sundays here at the end of Pentecost, at the end of the church calendar, are going to be focused on the return of Jesus. The Old Testament reading, Amos, is focused on the day of the Lord, but on the day of the Lord as a warning to those who have turned against him. It's a warning to those who would say, oh, we're looking for the day of the Lord. And actually, the day of the Lord is not light but darkness here in Amos 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. 
But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
epistle reading is uh, the famous rapture text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do have no hope. Others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul's point in writing this text, I mean, just to get into it, I couldn't think of like a witty introduction. Uh, Just to get into it, Paul's point in writing this text is to give hope to those who have lost loved ones, right? I mean, this is uh, the question they have. Have have our loved ones, have those close to us have died? Are they somehow being left out now since we're still alive and when Jesus returns, we'll be with him, but they've, they've missed out because it's too late for them, right? So Paul writes this to say, no, that we as believers have like a real legitimate hope. Others don't have hope. They don't have the ability to grieve with hope that we do. So, so this is written to us so that we can grieve with hope, not like the others do who have no hope. So outside of Christ, one of the things Paul's saying outside of Christ is there's no hope in the grief at the loss of loved ones. Our culture is largely largely stoic. We're largely materialistic. I mean, that, what I mean is like the material world is all that exists. That's, you know, you have what you can see, what you can taste, what you can feel. And, and outside of that, there's nothing. It's impossible to have that sort of mindset and to not have hope when you grieve. There's basically two ways. So in our culture, there's two ways that we deal with grief outside of Christ. One is the grief is going to control you. The grief's going to consume you. Or you're going to, con- you're going to have to learn how to control the grief. Either, the gr- either you're going to control the grief or the grief's going to control you. And you guys know what it's like. You know that first one, that people who've let grief consume them, people who've let grief control them. You know what, the- you've seen people who've been like that, who have just obsessed over the loss of a lumbar, and they just cannot get past it. I don't... Um, so part of this is a part of the sermon, and part of it is just a warning for when you come to me and say, will you conduct so-and-so's funeral? Almost, almost all the time when I do funerals here, somebody will say to me, well, so, yeah, my husband died, and, um, you know, he had a really good friend who'd like to say a few words at the service, too, and then his sister also would like to say some words. And I always feel really bad about this, but I always say no. And one of the reasons is because... This is a, it's a Christian service, and not that people else, not, not that other people can't talk on a Christian service, but it's my like responsibility to proclaim the gospel, and for somebody to talk without hope in the middle of a Christian. I always say like, okay, so we'll, we'll probably eat a meal downstairs afterwards. Like we'll have a microphone set up, and whoever wants to talk about their, their loved one is more than welcome to do it, because all too often somebody will get up and they'll just be consumed with the grief, and I've had at funerals before, you know, before I learned my lesson. 
you have people like just kind of like breaking down and saying, oh, we'll never see him again, but th- you know, we have the memories and thankfully they're good memories. Well, this is actually hopeless. I'm not saying it's bad to have good memories of your deceased loved ones, but that's hopelessness that they're gone and it's over and all we can do now is try to remember the good times. That being, that being overcome with grief and not being able not being able to find hope in the grief is a sign that you don't have Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that you won't feel hopeless when you grieve. That, you, that, that That's going to happen. It's totally appropriate to come to a funeral and break down. It's totally appropriate. I'm not, not, I'm not saying that. But if you don't move to a place where you understand the story that Paul's telling here, then you need to reevaluate what's your eschatology? What's the end game for you? Is it just live a good life and then it's over? Or is it the story that Paul's telling here? Okay, uh, Bar Star, does anybody know who Bar Star is? Some of you sports fans do. Bar Star was a, a quarterback for the Packers in the 1960s. And I, was, I read his biography several years ago. First of all, I read a biography of Bart Starr when I was a kid, and it was kind of a kid's biography, and it was all like, you know, hagiographic. He's just this great guy, you know, and he's a wonderful leader. And this newer biography I read was kind of fleshed out and human. His dad was in the Army. He was a, a drill sergeant in the Army. Bart had a younger brother, Hilton, two years younger than him. And Hilton was a fantastic athlete. They were kids in the 1930s in Alabama, right? And so they were running around outside with no shoes on, and Hilton stepped on an old dog bone and didn't think too much of it, you know, kind of cut his heel a little bit. But three days later, later, he died from tetanus poison. Bart's dad never got over it and reminded his son all through high school, all through college, about what a great athlete Hilton was and would put that in Bart's face, would say, Hilton would be starting for the team right now. You're not working hard enough. If Hilton was here, he'd be starting. He'd be the starting quarterback for the team. Bart was not a great athlete. He was not, but he pushed himself and pushed himself, actually became a Hall of Famer in the NFL. And the reason why is because he pushed himself to get his father's acceptance. And the reason why is because his father was controlled by grief at the loss of his son. And part of it is like, you understand that, right? I mean, part of it is whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we all, deep down in your psyche, we all know that death is horrible. It's a brokenness. It's not the way things were designed to work. There's something terribly uh, broken about it. And so you can understand that. But what we have to do in here in a minute is get to the story that Paul is telling to find real hope in the middle of that grief. So that's the first option. Grief will control you or, you'll learn, or you will learn to control the grief. Now, this is more common. So in our culture, let's say, so say you come to a funeral and I let somebody stand up here and talk with their loved one and they kind of break down and they're crying and they're sobbing. In our culture, everybody would be kind of embarrassed for them. You know, they'd be like, oh my goodness, I, I hope they're okay and I wish they could just sit down and so they wouldn't be embarrassed anymore and I wouldn't be embarrassed for them. If somebody got up and like spoke about their relatives with kind of a quiet firmness who had just passed away, we would say, oh, he's doing good. He's strong. That's because our culture is essentially stoic. We're essentially materialist. That these sorts of things, you know, you live in this world, and when somebody departs this world, you have to cope with the world that you're living in, right? There's this famous letter that Seneca wrote. The, the Roman philosopher Seneca, is stoic, wrote to a friend of hers named Marcia. She had lost her son, and she was grappling with grief. And he wrote her this letter. So you, can, you can find PDFs of it online. And he basically says to her, so starts off, he says, I'm not going to be easy on you. This is not going to be a tender soothing of a mother's broken heart. 
Like, you need to get over the grieving and you need to get over it now. And he gives her three reasons. And the first reason is, you gotta think of your friends. And he says to her in the letter, he's like, your friends don't know what to say to you. They don't know how to act around you. They don't know if they should be, come up and talk to you or they should back away. They don't know if they should bring up their son. They don't, they don't know if they should bring up your son's name or if they should avoid it. And what you're doing is you're being extremely rude to them. And you need to get over the grief so that they, who are in your life physically, while your son is gone, that you can have that relationship with the people who are actually in your physical universe. The second thing he says is uh, you need to stop grieving because it ignores your son's whole life. Like, remember how happy you were when he was born? Remember how happy you were when he learned to walk? These are examples that he gives in the letter. Remember how happy you were when he became successful at business? Like, that's just all gone now in your mind. And all you can think of is that he's not here. And you need to focus on the good times. This is very contemporary, like this is, because we live in a materialist, materialistic world. The third thing he says to her is this. It's easy to be strong when times are good, but now you're going through a rough time, and your strength is all you have left. Now is the time to demonstrate that you are strong and that you are in control of your emotions. The Stoics didn't believe in like, not having emotions. They believed in the ability to, you should have the ability to control your emotions. But, I mean, there's, of course, there's some truth in all three of those things, right? I mean, you do need to be concerned about people around you. Maybe not right in the moments right after you've lost your child, but eventually you should be concerned about them. It is good to remember. Like, uh, so, so, you know, my, my brother-in-law, uh, Jeremy, passed away extremely suddenly about 10 years ago when he was 25 years old. And in the moment, it's like impossible to think about the good times and now we can remember him, like, you know, goofy stuff he did when he was growing up or funny stuff he said, you know, when, when we would visit him when he was in college and things like that. That's appropriate, but that's not, that's not the, you, you don't get there immediately as an effort to abandon the sorrow of his passing. These are, these are all things that are, these are all good qualities, but made the priority, they're hopeless. They basically are, your son is gone, you have to live in the world that you're living in now, and move away from that. Move away from that. It's hopeless. So in our contemporary world, you will typically hear it like this. Okay, you guys have heard this before. Knowing that death is final, and it's the end of your physical existence, and that there's nothing afterwards that we can know. There might be, you know, but you can't know. It should teach you to live for today, to embrace the moment. This is what a lot of, this is in our culture, our materialism, this is the takeaway from death is live in the moment. You know, live like you were dying. That's a dumb country song. Um, so, you know, knowing that you're going to die, uh, you know, go climb a mountain. Whatever, I can't remember what he says in that song. But go climb a mountain, you know, go skydiving, uh, go bull riding. Like live for the moment, live right now. Again, this is just escapism, right? This is a way, this is a way to control the grief. I'm not going to let my grief control me, so I'm going to control it by avoiding it, by shutting it away. There's a certain sort of like, I guess, if you're happier ignoring your grief, maybe there's a positive to that. But, but, but again, essentially, it's hopeless. It's, it's, not, it's not a solution. The grief isn't solved. It's just coped with. The grief isn't fixed. It's just you find a good way to ignore it or to move on from it because you don't want it to control you. Right? So this, this theme of, you know, carpe diem, uh, you know, embrace the moment. Have you ever thought about that? Like, that means different things to different people. In light of our impending death, we should live for the moment. 
That depending upon what your philosophy of life is, it can mean different things. If it's materialist, like, I'm, like I've been describing, it can be, you know, go skydiving, you know, have, you know, have some good, good food with good friends and just kind of enjoy the now. If you're a spiritualist, it could be give up on the material world. You know, this is the famous Hal Lindsey line, you know, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? You need to live for eternal realities. You need to live not for the things of this world, but for, you know, the uh, spiritual things. That too is a way to escape. I know it sounds Christian, especially if you grew up like me in fundamentalism and dispensationalism. It sounds, there's a certain sort of Christianness to it, like, you know, don't think about the things of the world, just ignore that and focus on your prayer life and on spending time with Jesus. There's a certain sort of spiritualistic avoidance to the problem there. Now, what Paul's gonna offer here grapples with the material reality of the world and the spiritual reality. They're both important to God and they both have value. And at the end of the day, what he's going to give us in Jesus Christ is not a way to cope with your grief, but hope in your grief. That rhymed. I didn't do that in the first service, but I'm glad I did. That's a sign of a good pastor if they can rhyme stuff. Not a way to cope with your grief, but to have hope in your grief. I'm not gonna say it again because it's kind of embarrassing at this point. So this is what, it's a solution. It's not like, Here's how to psychologically deal with grief, but it's a solution to your grief is this text right here, okay? So let's get into it. This will be quicker. That was the introduction. It's longer than the sermon, I think. There's three things that Paul, that, that Paul offers us as biblical hope in this text. And one is hope for a restored universe, two, hope for a restored body, and three, hope for restored relationships. Hope for a restored universe, hope for a restored body, hope for restored relationships. So let's look at hope for a restored universe first. So you might be looking at this and thinking, okay, so where is the restored universe in here? But check out verses 15 and 16. Paul says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will be raised from the graves first before we who are alive are raised. What's all that with the language of the sound of the trumpet and the smoke and the thundering and the archangel's voice? He's actually using language directly from the story of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Remember in Exodus 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He comes down on Mount Sinai and he meets with Moses and he gives him the Ten Commandments. And then Exodus 20 says, this is what happens. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled. What's happening at Sinai that's happening here? What is this question? God is coming down onto this earth to meet and live with humans. That's, that's what happens in Exodus 20. It's not just about the giving of the law. It's that God is coming down to tell Moses, I want you to build me a tabernacle because I'm setting up shop here. I'm gonna live with you guys. I'm gonna live right in the midst of you. I'm gonna be manifested, live in the tabernacle, I'm gonna be manifested as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. I'm gonna live here. And what, what uh, Paul is saying here is that on the last day, Jesus is gonna do that again. Jesus is gonna come down and live with his people. I'll give you more details in just a second. But you see what's happening here is that, actually, let me give, let me give you some more biblical details right now. It's parallel is Revelation 21. So the, so the story that Christians have commonly told themselves in America for the past 200 years is that the end goal for you guys is when you die, you get to go up to heaven. But the end goal in the Bible is actually the other direction. God comes down here. Very end of the Bible, new creation, Revelation 21. Here's what John says. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, heaven, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, down, planting itself here on earth. And John hears a loud voice, and here's what it says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He doesn't say, I'm going to take humans and move them up to heaven to live with God. He says, I'm, the dwelling place of God is coming down here, and it's going to be with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is returning, not to grab all, the, all of his straggling children away and take them up to some, you know, uh, ethereal home up in the sky. Jesus is coming down here to restore the universe. He's coming down here to make new creation. In other words, put Mount Sinai and Jesus' return together. What's happening is, is the eternal is intersecting with the temporary, with the temporal, I should say. Infinite is intersecting with finite. Supernatural is intersecting with natural. The eternal God is coming and living on this planet, in this universe. His dwelling place will be with us. The infinite is living with the finite. The physical is living with, the, the spiritual is coming to live with the physical. And all these things are getting scrunched together to be the way that God designed them to be. This is why purely physical ways of coping with uh, mourning and grief are not appropriate because they don't take into account the eternal. Purely eternal or spiritual ways of coping with mourning and grief don't take into account the physical nature of the hope. Christianity of all religions and of all worldviews and all philosophies take into account the universe as physical and spiritual. Jesus returns to restore the universe. That's the first one, restored universe. Second one, restored bodies. Look at verse 17. This is the famous rapture verse. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, now maybe some of you are thinking, if you, I talked about this in Bible study, adult Bible study a year or so ago, so if you've heard this, you've already heard this, but maybe some of you are thinking, okay, that doesn't sound like we're here on the earth. It sounds like God is taking us up. You know, we're, he's gonna come and take us and we'll meet him in the air and we'll always be with the Lord. Well, that word meet right there in verse 17 is actually a technical word. It's not the, it's not the usual word for meet. Like if I'm gonna meet Carol for a cup of coffee, that's not the word I would use in Greek. It's a technical term and it means to go out and to greet a visiting important person and to welcome them to your home and then to bring them back inside or to welcome them to your city and then come with them back inside. And I know that maybe you're thinking, oh, that sounds like you're making that junk up just to fit in with the kind of the point you're trying to make. Let me give you a couple examples. This word meet, the word, the English word meet is in the New Testament a lot. But the Greek word that's here that's for meet is in the New Testament just three times. This is one of them. So, you know, we'll come back to this later. It's in there other, two other times. One, interestingly enough, is in our gospel reading for today. Uh, I don't know if that's coincidence or not. In Matthew chapter 25, where, uh, let me read it to you. Verse six, the parable of the wise and foolish, vir foolish virgins. At midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And it's that word for meet. Now, where do they go? The, you know, they're in the wedding hall. They don't go out to meet the bridegroom and then he takes them away somewhere else. They go out to meet him come back into the wedding hall, and then the doors are shut and locked. So what are they doing? They're going out to meet him, but they're out going out to meet him to greet him and welcome him back where they're coming from. One more time where this is used. Acts chapter 28. Paul is traveling around. He's headed to um, Rome, the city of Rome. And uh, as he's going there, the people at the church in Rome hear that he's coming. Acts 28 verse 15 says this. And the brothers there in the church in Rome when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius in three taverns, about nine or ten miles away, to meet us. Same word, meet. Not so that we can go somewhere else. 
Not so that Paul can take them to heaven when they die. That's not what's going on here. But so they can meet Paul and then go back into the city. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, they turn around and they go back into Rome. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Okay, now with that notion of the word meet, meet as going out to greet and then welcoming back in, go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. And when Paul says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, it's clear what's happening here. We're being brought to Jesus. We're going out to meet Jesus to welcome him back to his own place. Our bodies aren't going up to a spiritual heaven. They're being raised and restored to new life so that Jesus with us can reign over all creation. One more, one more thing, uh, two more things actually. One more illustration of this. The language that he uses is, you know, Jesus is coming with the clouds. We go up to meet him in the clouds. Where does that come from? Daniel chapter seven is where it comes from. Daniel seven says, it's a, it's a prophecy of the future coming Messiah. And it says, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Paul is using that language of the coming one coming on the clouds, not to say we're all going to live up in the sky someday, but to say that the king of the universe is on his way we who belong to him are given the privilege to be raised from the dead, to go out to meet him, and to be brought back to rule and reign with him. This is talking about the restoration of the universe, one, and the restoration of our bodies, number two. Now, here's the main thing, okay? And I, I, gave you the, I gave you the two lesser things first. The main reason why we say this is in verse 14. That, you know, this is about restoration of our bodies. Look in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The, what the New Testament teaches is this. The New Testament nowhere teaches that God's goal for you is to take you to heaven when you die. It is not why God saved you. It doesn't say that anywhere. Now, will you go to heaven after you die? Yes, that is in the New Testament. It's mentioned obliquely two or three times. What's mainly taught is, is that God's plan for your future is to raise your body from the grave. Because, main reason, verse 14, that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and then was buried and then went to heaven? No, no, no. Jesus died on the cross and was buried and his body actually came back to life. His heart started beating. The blood started coursing through his veins. His neurons started firing. He came back to life. As with Jesus, so with those who have been united to him. God will raise your bodies from the dead someday. That's your ultimate destiny is the restoration of your bodies. Okay. And so at funerals, this is why at funerals I always say, and if I do your funeral, I promise I will say this. I don't ever say, you guys have heard this at Christian funerals before, and it's not biblical. It's not biblical hope. It's cold comfort. Somebody will say, well, you know, here's the body of your loved one, and they're in a better place now. This is true. And uh, thankfully, we know that someday we'll see them again in heaven. That's only like a little partial truth that, like I said, is just cold comfort. Instead, what should be announced at funerals, and what I promise I'll announce at your funeral, if you let me do it, of course, it's up to you, but you know, I'm, up here, I'm up here asking for that, that, that privilege. What I will say, I promise, is, is that this body will be raised from the dead. I know it's broken. It's been embalmed. It looks cold and white and clammy. It's not coming back to life. I promise in Jesus Christ, that body, that same body, will be given new life and will come up out of that casket, out of that grave. And like Jesus, its neurons will fire, its endorphins will flow, its heart will start to slowly pump again. The blood will start to throw, flow through its veins. It will rise, and you will recognize that as your loved one that Jesus has raised from the dead. 
because the goal of the gospel is restoration of your body. Last thing, and then we'll be done. Restored relationships. What's the whole point of this text? The whole point of this text, you know, if you go back and read verses 13 and 14 is, people are worried that since their loved ones have died, they've been cut off from them and it's over. And what Paul is saying, no, it's not over. Jesus is gonna raise them and us together from the dead. So, very last line of our reading, verse 18. Therefore, not encourage yourself with these words. That's true, that's gonna happen. Encourage one another. This is a communal thing. Because the, the, the deepest cut that death strikes is the loss of relationship. That's what hurts most about losing a child or of a parent or a sibling or a dear friend or a grandparent is that that relationship has been cut off. And that deepest cut is healed in the gospel. God's going to raise their bodies and our bodies together someday. Do you see what the goal, do you see what Christian hope is here? Christian hope is God's plan to restore your body, to restore your relationship, to restore the universe, to restore everything by the resurrection of his son Jesus. That's the end game for you. That gives meaning, not just meaning to your mourning, your mourning now should be seen in light of this story where God fixes all things. It should give meaning to your life. It should give meaning to your day. What's valuable? What should you be living your life for now? Everything. Your body. You should be taking care of your body. It is a permanent reality. You should be taking care of your relationships. They are a permanent reality. You should be taking care of the environment. It is a permanent reality. God promises to rescue and redeem all these things through the power of the resurrection of his son, Jesus. Stand with me and let's pray, then we'll have communion. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to live out, that you would help us to experience the hope of this gospel. And whether it's something small, you know, like uh, being late to work, stuck in traffic, or whether it's something massive like the loss of someone who is super close to us, and all of our troubles in between, Father, help them to see those troubles in light of the resurrection of your son, Jesus, which guarantees that those bads will be undone, that you will put right everything in the world, that you will raise and restore the environment in our bodies, in our relationships. Help us to get our hope from this. Lord, in your mercy. Father, give everyone here uh, this morning and who's watching on the live stream who is worried about death, their own death or the death of people close to them who are grappling with grief. Give all of us this gospel hope in the resurrection of your son, Jesus. And we want to pray especially this morning for the family of Gene Costin and especially for Jason and uh, Jacob and James and Sam who are once again uh, close on the heels of Jason's father passing away, grappling with the loss of Gene who passed away this week. Uh, give them hope and comfort uh, in the middle of their grief hope and comfort that you are going to restore Ken and Jean someday that you're going to raise their bodies and raise our bodies and give us new life. And even in the midst of uh, pain and suffering to uh, rely on that, the promise of your son's resurrection. And for all others who are grappling with small brokennesses and big brokennesses uh, to take hope and comfort from uh, this resurrection power, Lord, in your mercy, Father, I don't pray for this enough, and uh, I, don't, I don't lead us in prayer for this enough, and I'm always reminded around election times that I need to. Father, be with our country and give its uh, leaders uh, wisdom and uh, knowledge of the truth 
and help them by the power of your Holy Spirit to lead us in wisdom and righteousness and justice and to put themselves and their own desires for power aside for the benefit of the people that they've been called to serve. Father, for those of our leaders who know you, confirm them in their faith, make them strong and steadfast, help them not to defame the name of their Savior by being greedy, by, by using political power for, to aggregate to themselves more power or more money or more sexual pleasure, but to use that power to serve others. For those of our leaders who don't know you, Father, we pray that you would draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit to your Son, Jesus, where they can sit at the feet of the true King of Kings and the true Prince of Peace and learn what real power, the power of the gospel is, and then reflect that power, the power of justice and righteousness and equity in our world. We pray for them, Father, and we pray for our country and for our state and for our county and for our village and cities that we live in. Lord, in your mercy. We pray these things only because your son Jesus has died for us and rose for us and has connected us to himself in such a way that his death and resurrection are ours. and They make us your children. And so we stand here in your throne room, speaking you as, as children to their father in the name of your son, our brother, Jesus. Amen. Let's uh, confess our faith uh, with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Jesus Christ, the Lamb.